Welcome to Work and Play, the award-winning podcast of Constangie Brooks, Smith & Profit, where we discuss employment news and provide practical insights and tips that you can use at your company or in your practice. I'm your host, Bill McMahon, and joining me today is Piyumi Samarantunga, who is co-chair of our immigration practice group and also head of our Minneapolis office. Uh, welcome back to the podcast, Piyumi. Thank you, Bill. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. It's definitely exciting to have you today. And the the title of our podcast episode today is Demystifying Immigration Law, which I'm really excited about and I know you are. I am. Can can you give us a little background on your practice, Piomio, and what it is you do at Constangi? Yes. So we as a group assist any employer in the U.S., who is looking to hire, retain, and promote talent that comes in the form of a non-U.S. worker. And that yeah, non-U.S. worker could be someone already in the U.S. in some other visa type, perhaps uh, studying as an international student at one of our schools or colleges, or here as the spouse of a of a, either a U.S. worker or a or another work authorized U.S. worker, or already working for an organization that is outside your specific company. So when when an employer is looking to hire someone who is not a U.S. worker falling under any of those categories, or even someone who's located outside the U.S. In order to be able to legally employ such an individual, the employer needs to first ensure that the individual is granted lawful employment authorization in the U.S. And that's where we come into play and assist the employer. So we are always um, representing the employer, enabling and assisting them to, to hire non-U.S. work, uh, workforce-based talent in a legal manner. All right. So that's interesting because typically when, you know, when I think of immigration law, just off the top of my head, I think of folks that might live in another country and then are coming to work in the United States. But what you're saying is a lot of your work involves folks that are already living in the United States but they may not have, say, work authorization yet in the U.S. Absolutely right, Bill. You are spot on. That doesn't mean that those uh, who are located outside the U.S. will not be considered, but the greater majority of the foreign national population for whose benefit our efforts are undertaken on behalf of the employer often are already here in the U.S. And and it is simply a matter of they are not authorized to work for a specific company, the company that is now looking at this talent or now looking at hiring this talent. So you are absolutely right. It is not necessarily that the employer is going outside U.S. border to hire talent, but the talent is already here and the employer just wants to make sure that they are complying with all legal requirements to ensure that the individual is appropriately authorized 
to work for the company. That makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, in building off of that, then, um, is it only, you know, really large employers that are looking to recruit, uh, you know, non-U.S. workers or do you work with smaller companies as well? Great question, Bill. That really kind of speaks to our topic of demystifying immigration law. One of the myths in the marketplace is uh, immigration lawyers and immigration law-related work is exclusively for the benefit of multinational global companies and not for smaller or medium-sized domestic or locally focused companies, and that is absolutely not true. While yes, global multinational corporations do lean on on immigration law and and hiring non-U.S. talent, that is not exclusively their domain. You could be a small, locally based, locally focused corporation, but you could be hiring talent that graduates out of your local schools and universities. Or you could be looking to hire from top-notch universities, be it the Ivy Leagues or any other uh, U.S.-based university or college. Or you could be looking to hire uh, from your competitors, a lateral hire. And if any of those types of recruitment effort includes in your pool a non-U.S. worker, you would need to interact with an immigration lawyer or law firm to make sure that you are complying with immigration law laws and the framework and that the individual is, in fact, legally authorized to work for you specifically in that role. So our client base includes you know, small startups to the largest of corporations and everything in between. It is not strictly meant for one type of employer category. Yeah, that's a that's a great clarification. And I really appreciate all the examples you gave there too, of, you know, different sizes and types of employers that might have an immigration law need. Um I'm going to go back to one of the points that you mentioned kind of at the outset of the episode, which is the whole concept of employment authorization. Um, And, you know, on that, could you speak to the different types of employment authorization that are out there? Because I know, you know, we hear the concept of, you know, immigrant visas, non-immigrant visas all the time. But for folks that are not as familiar with it, it can, it can be a little overwhelming. So is there any way you can kind of break that down a bit for us? Happy to, Bill. You're absolutely right. So if you're thinking of, you know, broadly speaking, you can break down visa types or categories into non-immigrant, which is really temporary work authorization or temporary visas, and then the immigrant, which is the permanent. Um, we also refer to those more as green card holders, uh, which is the more colloquial term. The difference between non-immigrant and immigrant or temporary and permanent is a temporary visa or a temporary work authorization limits the activities the individual can undertake, the employer 
for whom he or she can work, the role in which he or she is in, and often even, you know, tethers them to a certain work site versus the permanent or the indefinite work authorization gives more flexibility. There is no time constraint. It is for an indefinite period of time. So those are the two broad categories. Within those two broad categories, under the temporary or non-immigrant category, there is literally an alphabet soup of visa types. Uh, H-1B, perhaps you have heard, Bill, is the most commonly used work-authorized visa or, or status, but that is not the only one, you know, from TN to L to P to O. You know, we literally have an alphabet soup that is available based on the individual skill set, the requirements for the role, and the profile of the employer. So uh, based on those three factors, you can pick the visa type that applies to your situation the best or, or the candidate you're looking at the best. Okay. So in other words, I guess if it's say an employer is trying to recruit for a given position, you kind of have to know the details of that position in order to determine what category of, say, temporary visa you're even talking about in the first place. Is that right? Uh, yes and no, Bill. So the empl- that's that's where our, you know a partnership with us or, or any other immigration firm or lawyer comes into play. So as an employer, what you should be focused on is really how do you uh, attract and grow the best talent pool, right? When you identify someone and and come to the realization that that is not a uh, U.S. worker, then the selection and the analysis of what visa type can be left to the immigration experts, whether in-house or external. But you, yes, you do need to have a very clear understanding of what is the role you're considering this individual for. Once you have that and a resume or individual in mind, it is for the immigration experts to determine are there options? And if yes, what options uh, is the most viable option given the facts of that specific case? Right. And it, can you give us just, you, you mentioned that there's kind of an alphabet soup of the different um, types of these visas, and they all have kind of different letters assigned to them, if you will, with, with different designations. Can you break down a couple types of those just to give us kind of a flavor of what's out there as, as far as they pertain to different types of positions? Happy to, Bill. So and again, this is just kind of a brief overview or description I mentioned I mentioned that the H1B is the most commonly used so the H1B is a temporary visa category or classification that has an annual quota and a six-year limit to its duration with you know an exception uh, where applicable Generally speaking, the H-1B is, the, is a 
visa type that can be available only if the role for which the individual is being considered is a kind of role that would require a four-year undergraduate uh, college degree, university degree in a very specific field. So if it is a role that does not need or does not require a four-year university or college degree, then it's not a role that you can consider for H-1B sponsorship. But if it is, and you have an individual who meet that requirement and you find the skill set to be the right uh, fit for your requirements, then H-1B would be appropriate. On the other hand, the TN category, which came out of the NAFTA protocols, is only a category that is available to Canadian and Mexican citizens. So if you are a citizen of Mexico or Canada and your role that you are being considered for or the role that you are being considered for is one that is approved for TN classification. So it's not every job, not every role, but there are very specific uh, jobs or roles that are TN eligible, then it is another option for those citizens of Canada and Mexico. The E3 is a similar uh, work authorized classification that is similar to H1B in terms of the basic requirements that the entry level requirement for the role should be a four year. Uh, college degree, but it is only available to Australian citizens. So that's just a kind of smattering in terms of uh, examples of commonly used work authorized visa types. Yeah, I, I definitely appreciate that. So it's it sounds like within those categories, there's not only position distinctions, but in some of those categories, it really matters uh, where the individual is a citizen, if you will, in terms of what country. Um, depending upon where that is, there may be a different visa category available, for example. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. So one of the things I wanted to talk with you about, Piomi, was what impact you're seeing, you know, co- you know, both COVID-19 and now that we're hopefully getting on the back end of COVID-19 through, through the vaccination and everything else, that, you know, what impact has all of that had on immigration practice and, and also kind of on the challenges that employers are facing from an immigration law standpoint? So the, the challenge during COVID and now that we are kind of opening up and hopefully getting to a post-COVID phase is right. the, the travel piece, you know, because of covid Travel, whether domestic or international, was severely impacted and restricted in certain instances, came to a complete standstill. And that was kind of, I think, the greatest impact of COVID on immigration. Um, Often the job or the role itself required the individual to travel. And where the job or the role did, did not require the individual to travel, it still impacted 
you know, the legally authorized employees because being foreign nationals, often they would uh, travel internationally for for personal and family reasons. So that kind of created challenges. Uh, now that we are opening up, as you mentioned, the race is on for global talent. You perhaps saw, Bill, the recent New York Times article on this very issue that uh, there is a serious race that has already begun uh, that is kind of, you know, racing to attract top global talent because companies are really gearing to a kind of fast-paced return to post-COVID uh, era or a post-COVID phase. And and so immigration has come again uh, to the surface as, as another tool uh, in an employer's recruitment bucket to employ again as a mechanism to attract top talent. Yeah, that's yeah, and and that's kind of interesting because I, you know, when you when you phrase it that way as a tool that employers have available for talent, it it makes it seem a whole lot less intimidating, quite honestly. And and that is where where we come into play, you know, often we think of immigration as this mystical, unfathomable kind of uh, morass that uh, is so complex and so unwieldy and impractical. Um, And all of us, even those of us in the field, like to complain as to how broken and inflexible our immigration system and legal framework is while some of it is partly true it is not as bad as we would like to make it out so even during uh, covid you know a truly global pandemic that none of us and um, which is true for employers too foresaw or prepared uh, we saw that the immigration framework was still kind of quite flexible and there were uh, was the ability for even employers with significant numbers of foreign national employees to provide the accommodations that a once in a hundred year pandemic required them to provide to their employees, be it ability to work remotely or work from home. So it is not as broken as we would like to believe, Bill. Yeah, I, and and I really appreciate your clarifications on it today. Not only just in terms of kind of the different options out there for employers, but also kind of where it fits in the overall overall kind of arsenal as far as recruiting goes. So, Pumi, I definitely appreciate you joining us today, and I I feel like I understand a little bit more than I did before the episode started. <laughs> That was the goal, Bill. (laughs) I'm glad you found it to be helpful. Absolutely. Uh, That is going to be a wrap for this episode of Work and Play, but we look forward to seeing you next time. And if you have any questions, please feel free to submit them. And we look forward to the next episode. So, Piumi, thank thank you you very much again.